Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Good evening, everybody. Jacob Daniel here. This is the Daniel 3 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Uh, running a little late. I had to work today. My wife's gone on a, on a women's retreat. And so I had the kids at my mom's house and then had to run, pick them up, get them back here, get them to sleep. I'm still in my work clothes, but I'm just like, yeah, screw it. Whatever. Doesn't really matter. Um, so uh, got a lot of stuff to talk about tonight with our guest first we'll do the basic housekeeping um of course as always as with most episodes uh i plug my good friend will bell's rabbit eye blueberry wine if jesus was walking the earth today still turning water into wine uh i would hope that he'd be doing blueberry wine because that's what's up um and my guest tonight actually uh him and i might (laughs) uh I think we had enough of this for maybe, uh, I don't know, a, a while, probably till the next communion, because uh, we, we both drank too much of it last night. Um, but he is Liam McCollum. Uh, we met on uh, from Doing Reads show, um, fellow libertarian uh, uh, Christian and Meacock, has his own show, does really great uh, deep dives into foreign policy and, uh, um, and other current events and stuff. And we're going to have a conversation tonight about uh, some stuff that, that he's been doing over there in his home state of Montana and on uh, just kind of broadly speaking uh, what we do as Christian libertarians to try to, uh, you know, a- appeal to our folk, I guess. So uh, I'm going to bring him up now. Liam, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And I totally agree with you. Uh, probably won't be drinking that wine for a while, but I do recommend that everyone go check out his wine though will's wine it's it's really good stuff i drank a whole bottle last night yeah (laughs) yeah you you definitely downed a whole lot um by the way your internet okay maybe it's shaken up now you were frozen up a little bit there um i don't know if you want to try leaving and coming back in because that seems to it seems to fix it last night you can do that because i had the same problem last night yeah all right so we'll give liam a chance to leave and rejoin um also while we're waiting for him i'll say that 
Um, I'm still working on getting my website back up. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's it, it it's a it's a bit of a mess uh, with the the hosting process, but the website will be back up soon. Um, it, something glitched out when we switched from one host to another, and uh, so uh, it, it should hopefully be fixed soon. All right, there you go. Now you're now you're normal and not like in the weird matrix zone that you were <laughs> yeah i can't i can't tell when it happens on my end so you should let me know if it happens well again. what's weird is that it didn't do anything until we went live like you were fine in the back room beforehand and then we went live and then it just kind of all went to hell but and then whatever last night nothing happened until i started talking and right it just yeah up. <laughs> whatever so uh yeah but yeah like, i mean like, long time no talk right it's only been 24 hours so <laughs> how you doing Less than that i'm doing i'm doing really well tired today but uh we we stayed up until like midnight here talking afterwards which was a lot of fun um it's good to catch up with you guys yeah no that was one of our uh i don't know i think like each talk gets a little bit a little bit better but uh um but yeah that was definitely a a fun conversation and then the actually the conversation got really good afterward because we we talked for like two hours after we were done streaming which i was telling reed because i was looking at reed's uh patreon the other day and and i was like dude like you have like nothing there like there's no tears there's no content it's just like which i mean it's on brand for him i guess he's just like hi i'm reed like you know i do a show give me money <laughs> it's just like you gotta put something there like you know those kind of after hours stuff might might be something he might want to consider doing um yeah that, would, that would definitely be interesting with the four horsemen right yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so this is um we've talked a bunch but this is your first time on my show so um maybe we'll just start out just briefly uh let you introduce yourself uh and just kind of your background and stuff for for my listeners who may not catch you on reed's show yeah i'm i'm a student here at the university of montana i i grew up here in montana and i i um, my story as to how I came to libertarianism is pretty unconventional. A lot of people came through Ron Paul, a 2008 campaign, but I was eight years old. So, uh, I, I was way too young. I, my, my parents watched the debates and I, I think they supported Romney. So I grew up in a pretty traditional conservative household and, um, I, I was a neocon, um, up until my senior year of high school. And then I signed up for a civics class where my, my teacher was actually a, an anarchist, an anarchist libertarian who, who liked Ron Paul. Wow. And I mean that, you know, a lot of people, not a lot of people take a civics class, let alone have an anarchist teacher teaching them, you know? <laughs> so I, I'm very lucky in that respect. And I, he, he wasn't very overt with his beliefs or anything, but I eventually caught on. And then we started to have more conversations. I would stay after and, um, I, I would ask questions about the constitution and eventually that led me to Lysander Spooner. And I also, I found that there were a lot of contradictions because on one hand, um, he seemed to support some things that, that Donald Trump would do. Um, but then all of a sudden out of, out of nowhere, he would, cause he would be bashing like Obamacare or something like that. And me at the time, I'm a very binary thinker. I'm supporting MAGA, um, had a MAGA hat and everything. Uh, and then every every once in a while, he'd just start to bash Trump on foreign policy. And I think that kind of broke the whole, you know, binary system that I was in. And I was like, wait, you can actually be nuanced in your beliefs here. You don't have to, like, Did belong it, to one camp. But was, was part of it just that they were offering, like, a legit criticism of Trump and not, like, the 
all the deranged crap that you hear from like the media on the left because I, yeah. I know yeah that's because i know that's something that you now i came from the left but uh i, I had a, a, a weird experience where i hated trump and that's kind of why i voted for hillary when i was on the left still and a registered democrat but then i could tell the media was being dishonest about him for like this first year and then the first people who were actually criticizing him in the way that lined up with what my problems were were libertarians and so that's kind of why i started to be attracted to them yeah that, that's definitely a part of it i mean like it, i think it's pretty sad that the left at least like the establishment really put libertarians in a position where they they felt like they needed to defend trump at times or like even leftists like glenn greenwald the fact that like they were so dumb in how they treated trump that that we were in the position of defending him a lot um but yeah, no, I, I think the the predominant reason was foreign policy, though. I and it was very theoretical. I wasn't I wasn't really technical in my political beliefs. Like I didn't know much about foreign policy and what we were doing in Afghanistan or Iraq or Yemen or anything like that. But it, it was more on the level of like, well, I had been given these narratives that that conservatives were in favor of limited government and natural rights and all of these things, and then it seemed to be very inconsistent policy i think i just froze for a second am i back you're, you're back now you're good okay okay yeah um so they, they were very inconsistent in their foreign policy specifically when trump first bombed syria and then uh dropped the moab a week later those things really woke me up because i started to look into like um trump's cabinet and um i, I know that he was very relaxed in his foreign policy and and kind of gave generals his, his generals really the freedom to do whatever. Um, a big example is that like Trump didn't even know about the Moab until after he, after it was dropped on Afghanistan. And I think that that, that really woke me up to the military industrial complex. And um, most of it was through foreign policy. Well, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so when did you get involved in, 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 the, in the LP and you're in the state of Montana. Like what was that experience like? Yeah. So I got involved, um, shortly before. So I got involved when Tom Woods and, um, people that I had been listening to for a while started to endorse Jacob Hornberger. Um, and I got involved with my convention and it, it was pretty small at the time. Like I think only 10 people showed up. I just showed up and I decided to become an alternate for the convention that year. So I actually voted for Hornberger and I went to that convention. Um, and then after Hornberger lost and Jorgensen got nominated, I actually supported her for a little bit just because I, I was like, well, I'm in the Libertarian Party. I might as well support the candidate. Um, and then obviously there were the mistakes that happened with the, the Twitter account and then um, not really paying attention to COVID. Although those those mistakes seem very uh, benign compared to some of her more recent mistakes. Oh, yeah, seriously. Because <laughs> I, I was watching that that episode um, live with uh, what's his name, Patrick. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was watching that episode live, and I when when she said that about Dave, the twelve shots in, I was like, "Are you serious?" And well, I think that that really woke me up to like, I, I don't think she's really in control of her campaign. I think that there. are there are just people who are active on social media who are kind of like telling her. Things. Oh yeah. yeah. And I, I believe the anti-racism tweet is probably the, along the same lines too. 
but yeah yeah it's, but it's, it's also sad. it's one thing to let somebody put out a bad tweet on your social media campaign and, and, or, or your social media account and i honestly defended her longer than most in my camp um in our camp you know what i mean um and it was it wasn't because i was especially impressed by her although i did like spike obviously but i just kind of felt like okay but she's got her issues but she's a like a lot better than gary johnson and bill weld and we should unless like if somebody is just maybe not running the best campaign but they're still good on the issues we should still support them even if we would have preferred somebody else and that was kind of my attitude uh for a while but that 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 interview uh with, with patrick where she talked about dave was like a complete lack of situ- situational awareness and like it wasn't even just that part like that whole interview was just such a cringe fest and it's just yeah i mean she's not a nice lady i think i think her and i you know well here i'll 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 answer my thoughts on joe jorgensen like she did about dave like you know i'm sure on healthcare, you know no difference right but uh you know she thinks that it's okay to uh straw man people and their beliefs based upon hearsay rather than you know, actually talking to them and looking into them or, you know, just, just, you know, saying pass when asked a question about something that you're not maybe the most comfortable answering. It's just, I don't know. It it is what it is, but, um, I guess the benefit to that episode though, is maybe that opens up the possibility Dave goes on there. Maybe that would be, that would be cool. Um, because I mean, everyone in the comments was saying that she's the reason why the Libertarian Party isn't, or like people like her are the reason that the Libertarian Party uh, or people leave it. And, and yeah. then most people were endorsing Dave in the comments. Yeah, no, hopefully he does, you know, especially uh, down the road if he does end up um, seeking the nomination. I know he's going to, he's going to get on a lot of podcasts and, uh, you know, especially like, people like Pat or people like Dave Rubin and he already goes on Rogan and Tim Poole. So it, it, it's super exciting uh, to, to see that, that possibility happen. Um, so you guys in Montana recently had your convention, right? Um, what, 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 uh, what, what happened there and what, what is kind of like the Montana LP like right now? I mean, are you guys still on the smaller side? Is it kind of like one of these more contentious States or does everybody get along? Like what's kind of the, the I guess like the 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 backstory of the party leading up to the convention. Yeah, it's I'd say there's not enough infrastructure and there's not really a party there for there to be much contention. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like, the the party has grown. Uh, it's it's doubled its size over the last two years, and that is attributed to the Mises Caucus. But um, as for active members, it's it's still really small, and it doesn't help that our state is so large. I mean. I had to drive seven hours to get to the, the convention that happened uh, last month, so or a couple of weeks ago. And is it is Montana mostly like mountain region and not populated, or is it? it it's so the western part of the state is is very mountainous, but okay. the eastern side is like really flat and looks like Wyoming. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I had to drive from Missoula to Miles City, and that took me seven hours. Um, Damn. Yeah. So that that's part of the problem. I, I feel like if if we really started to, uh, if we had our conventions at like some place in the middle of the state, I feel like more people would be able to come. Um, but the current chair wants to 
move us around every year. That's what that's what our party had been doing for a while. And I mean, in Pennsylvania is a little bit smaller than Montana, but it's still big enough that like they've done it like one year they did it in uh, like as close to like the north eastern corner as they could. And then the next year it was in Pittsburgh. And I was just like, why don't we just do it like in Harrisburg or somewhere central where it's just, you know, yeah. it just doesn't make sense to like make some people drive 10 minutes and some people drive five hours or six hours to 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 make a convention it's a little but um so i mean how how big was it is it like you know, like we're talking we, 50 people 100 well, we people? had nine, 19 people show up to the oh convention. wow yeah so it's it's pretty small um I mean, Miles City, though, is really tiny, so it, it makes sense. My and county affiliate is bigger than your state party. <laughs> yeah, the county I'm in has, like, three active people in it. So, And we're, like, one out of, I think, seven counties that are affiliated. Is Montana a blue or red state? Is it a red state because they're just mostly rural? rural it, was, or? it was very purple until COVID. <laughs> okay. And we had a blue governor um, for eight years, and then COVID happened, and, yeah, we— for the first time, I think in like 16 years, we, we got a Republican governor and we all of our we only have one um, one member in our delegation to D.C. is a Democrat. So hmm. and then the the legislature in Montana is very red. Gotcha. All right. So you guys got your uh, um, I, mean, I don't know what else you did in the state party, but one of the things that I saw that you told me and that you kind of put out there was that you guys made some changes to your uh i guess your platform one of the one of the changes being that you removed the uh abortion plank was that i mean there's only you know not many of you but was it was it a contentious thing or was it something that was pretty pretty much you know went went through without a problem yeah well the the party and and the people in the party say that they've been debating this plank for decades since probably the party first began and Apparently, it's it's come up every single convention, which happens on even years. It, that's the platform convention. And uh, apparently, people would introduce pro-life platforms, and then you would get, like, contentious debates about the language and um, and just, like, what a specific term means in the current plank. And my position the whole time since I first joined the party was that we should get rid of the plank entirely to avoid those discussions and avoid the headache um, also, as a Mises Caucus organizer, one of the biggest um, roadblocks, I guess, to getting people into the party is the abortion plank. I, when I'm talking to conservatives and specifically conservatives who are kind of disaffected Republicans right now, they they say that they're willing to join the party, but the abortion plank, they, they can't sign on to it. Um, the, and I'll read the current language or, or the language before this last convention, because I think it's kind of important to see why conservatives or more conservative leaning people would be opposed to it. Um, so it was 1.5. It says recognizing that abortion is a sensitive issue and that people can hold good faith views on all sides. We believe that government should be kept out of the matter, leaving the question to each person for their conscientious consideration. So to me, the way that it's read almost seems like it should say recognizing that abortion is a sensitive issue and that people can hold good faith views on all sides. We do not speak on the matter, something like that. But instead, it seems to take more of a pro-choice 
stance yeah. by saying that government should be kept out of the matter. And then, you know, I would, I would, before I proposed the amendment, I, I was just talking to people in the party and, um, one of the biggest arguments against it was that like, uh, you know, we believe in private societies and, um, government should stay out of it or something like that. And I said, well, even if, you know, if we do believe in, in private societies, it's totally possible that, that a private society might prohibit abortion. Um, and, and I don't, I think instead of getting into those philosophical conversations about what the proper libertarian stance is, I think we should just avoid those debates every two years and, and really allow candidates to have that conversation at the door. Um, someone who argued in favor of it was like, you know, I, I can turn off people when I'm, when I'm at the door. I don't need a website or the, the, the libertarian party platform to do that for me. And I, I think that that's a pretty good argument for hmm. that. Yeah, no, and it, it, it's similar. That language is similar to what the national platform is too. And yeah, it's sort of like it pays a little bit of lip service to like there being different points of view, but then just basically ends up taking the other, you know, one one side of the of the argument. Which, um, and I know there's some like especially in the. Uh, the praxian or post lib or whatever they want to be called camp that feel like you know they've told me like well it's not enough to remove you got to put in the pro-life plank plank but i feel like you know and i, I want to get your thoughts on this sounds like we we probably agree here like as much as i'm personally pro-life i don't view the libertarian party or even politics in general as being the vehicle to sort of combat the, the issue of abortion other than like where it maybe is going to be sort of a tangential uh, thing, like a tangential component to a broader issue, like let's say uh, like ending welfare spending or cutting off funding to Planned Parenthood or, well, you know, things like that, that like there's a libertarian argument to be made beyond just the topic of abortion. Um, you know, same with like what we talked about on Reed's show last night, like with decentral decentralization and whatnot. Other than that, though, I just feel like abortion is not something that you can combat with the political system. And if you're going to be involved in politics, um, you know, especially within the Libertarian Party, I think the goal is to sort of, as, as the Mises Caucus kind of puts it out there, you know, focus on, you know, solving a like a sort of core foundational set of issues and attacking those and not adding too many wedge issues that people are divided on rather focus on like those issues that there's broad support for regardless of where people are coming from. And, and they're not going to get, you know, they're going to be more productive because they're focusing on a smaller set of issues that they agree on rather than being distracted by those wedge ones. Um, would you agree with that? Or Yeah. I, th I think the kind of populist strategy is, is very smart and that's kind of what was motivating this. I, I was the one who brought the this amendment to the floor because when I first got in the party, this was one of the biggest concerns for me. Um, I, I also didn't want to be associated really with a party that had this stance. And then many, including the the teacher um, from high school who who was a libertarian, refused to join the party because of this this plank. Um, and and the way that I kind of view the party is kind of as like. I think it was Michael Heiss who, who told me this argument. It's like, 
there was the Dallas Accords that kind of acknowledged that the Libertarian Party is a big tent. And yeah. it, it was like the compromise between the minarchists and the anarchists. And it's like, we're not going to take a stance in either direction. And we're going to acknowledge that, you know, we can have good faith views in both directions. And I, and one of the arguments to get rid of um, the plank, I think, is that getting rid of it actually does what the plank is trying to do in spirit. It says, like, everyone can have good faith views on, on all sides. Um and we believe that everyone should leave it to their conscientious consideration. But I think actually removing it did that, right? It actually allows candidates, it allows members to um, hold their own view on it. And I actually, one of the, the proposals was to get rid of the abortion plank completely, but then leave in brackets 1.5 removed. And because I'm so opposed to like, in either direction because I'm opposed to taking a stance in either direction. I, um, I thought that if we left 1.5 brackets removed, that would draw attention to the fact that we removed it and might make a statement in the other direction. And I was like, rather than drawing attention to the issue at all, we should just remove it and then allow candidates or counties to create their own platforms. Yeah. Um, and I think that that will overall benefit the party in the long term. Um, because I, I know the more blue county in the state, the one that I live in, Missoula, Missoula County, was, I believe, the only county that won, um, that voted for Ron Paul in, in 2008 or 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the blue county here, you know, they might be more pro-choice or something like that, and, and we should allow for localism in, in that realm. But then also, also, like, the rest of the state is leans red. And I'm like, why would we shoot ourselves in the, in the foot when like people are so tired of the Republican Party right now? I hear it all the time. Um, but ahead of time, we're going to say that and we're going to ostracize these people who are more likely pro-life. I, I just think that it it's not a great strategy. And a lot of people wanted to argue on philosophical grounds during this Um while we were debating this amendment and, and I was like, I'm not making a philosophical argument right now. Like I, we could talk about the nuances of, you know, what a libertarian society might do, what due process would look like if, if we were to, you know, prohibit abortion or something like that. And I'm like, that's not the purpose of the party. I don't think like, I think we should talk about the issues that, that we all agree on because I mean, the reality is we agree on like 97% of the things. Right. And it's like, we can either get bogged down by debating the things we don't agree on at the cost of the things we do, or we can all agree like, you know, this stuff here, whether it's, it's kind of usually like immigration and abortion. Okay. We don't all have the same answers for that, but if we leave that behind, then we have more, you know, more attention and more time to devote to the things we do agree on and we could actually make headway on those things. And, and I almost feel like if you make headway on those things, the other two become less of an issue because if you have a decentralized society, then they'll take decentralized approaches to abortion and to immigration, which I think ultimately is the libertarian answer to, 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 to both of those, uh, to both of those problems. Yeah, I completely agree. And focusing on economics, right? Like I think that uh, economics are 
um, it, it's a b- very big factor as to why women are aborting children. And, you know, I, I think that abortion is murder. Um, I just wonder if the current way that conservatives argue, you know, combating it is the proper way to go about it. And rather than, you know, getting into that debate, I think that we can have like, you know, entrepreneurial candidates or messengers out there making those arguments as to as to how we could uh, fix this issue. And I just don't think that like uh, a, a little paragraph on a on a website can make headway when this is such a contentious issue. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it, and and if people are going to talk about it at all, it's better for the candidate to do it, I think, because and they can and, and they can sort of like, you know, play play both sides, I guess, where they can say, well, here are my personal views, but here's the party's view and the party doesn't really take a stance. And so that allows, you know, people to, to freely express themselves. It's not like they're being forced to either, you know, right now it's like you're forced to either uh, contradict the party platform or you're forced to like dodge it or try to ignore it, I guess, if someone brings it up. Um, so it, it's kind of, it, it's problematic in, in that, in that regard, I think. So it's, it's good to remove it. And I, and I think, you know, that I agree, like in my experience, that is for better or for worse, an issue that conservatives and Christians focus so much on that getting them to consider alternatives to the Republican party is tough when there's no other party that is at least not pro-choice <laughs> it's one thing to say hey can you leave the abortion issue aside to focus on other things but it's hard to do that when a, when you're you know joining a party that is basically explicitly pro-choice at least being neutral you know you're not going to get everybody because again I, I do think there are some who like the issue is so important to them and 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 their view is that like you know we need to use the political system to solve it and so they're going to continue to operate within the GOP and be single issue voters and whatever. Those are not going to be the people we 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 reach. But the other ones who are more like us, who care about it, but but think that the solution is outside of politics, this frees them up to to maybe finally make that plunge into the LP without violating their conscience. And you know, I mean, we we need people, obviously. Like if we're going to be competitive politically, you know, whether it's, I mean. We're, honestly, I, I don't think we'll, we'll ever be competitive on a federal level, but we have a chance to be somewhat competitive at a state level um, in certain states. And I think we have a really unique opportunity to be competitive at the local level. But even there where the barrier, the barriers are less, we still need more people. You know what I mean? Like and the Libertarian Party, I think for so long has been playing this strategy that's like instead of growing the movement, it's like, let's try to trick uh, Democrats and Republicans or the moderates into voting for us, even though like they don't agree with us on anything. It's like right. it's not a it's not a winning strategy. It's had like, you know, you know, certain years where it pays off in the short term and you get like a high vote total. But then you look at the next year and the vote totals drop back down or at least the percentages drop back down. And it's like so you're not, you know, getting people to vote libertarian once doesn't actually move the ball forward in any meaningful capacity. Yeah, I think Rothbard's idea, like when he helped found the party, is is really what we, we should be pursuing is that like we should be a vehicle for 
pure libertarianism um, and conservatives pretend to be libertarian and especially in the state here we hear all the time from uh, both Republicans and Democrats they're like well you know I have a libertarian streak in me and I think that like if there could actually be a party that represents real libertarianism um, we could at least influence them in, in this state I, I know many people um, who have declared as a libertarian who have then received calls from their Republican candidate, like trying to negotiate with them and trying to them to trying to get them to drop out of the race. And I think maybe that's specifically a, a problem that we have here in Montana, but I think we can really use that to our advantage. Um, and I, I think that red states like Montana need to, I think we should also maybe embrace decentralized decentralization in the libertarian party too. And, you know, maybe Montana is one of those states that needs a pro-life platform later. Um, I, I don't think that I would advocate for that, but like, and then a more blue state would have a pro-choice one. Um, I, I just think uh, another problem we ran in, into here in Montana is some people think that we should have a standardized platform that goes along with the national platform. I, I've never, I don't know if you've ever heard that. Argument. I have. Yeah. yeah. Which to me seems weird because if the national if the national party changes their platform, it's not as if like the state party automatically like corresponds or fixes like that would have to be voted on. Not to mention it's like, it's so contrary to the spirit of libertarianism. Right. It's like individual choice and, and diversified governance. Oh, but we just copy what national does. Exactly. Like it's just, it, it, it just, yeah, it's silly. Um, I guess, I guess I'll address the one, question we got in the comments uh richard copeland asked kind of, kind of like it's, it's an amalgamation of a lot of questions into a into a in, into one statement but but he asked uh does the unborn have uh nap protection meaning the, the not aggression principle um not babies taking naps because I mean, completely different uh do they trump the mother uh whose choice created the situation or are they equal? Or does the mother have the sole right? Um, I mean, it would take me like an hour. It would take us an hour, a couple hours to answer that like thoroughly. Um, I mean, I believe that the unborn, you know, it's, I still view them as an uh, an unborn child as an individual who has the same rights as those who are born. Um, as for, is there, a, you know, what, what do you do about the conflict I guess between the two beings and and whose rights should win out. I mean, I I've always kind of said, well, what's the least amount of aggression? And yeah, I guess I understand if I'm going to be charitable to the other side. Like, yeah, it's a bit of an ask to for the mother to you know, let's say she got pregnant by accident, not intentionally. You know, there's a bit of an ask there to house a, a fetus for nine months. But I feel like you know the 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 fetus did not put themselves there on purpose you know what i mean so it's not like it's not like they snuck in there or they they forced themselves in there they find themselves in that position and it's sort of like if if you caught a stowaway on your plane while you were you know a thousand miles above above the the surface and it's like okay well you have a right to remove them from your plane if you don't want them there but you kind of have to wait till you're in a position where the removal doesn't immediately result in their in their death um because because then you're actually violating their rights more than 
they were violating yours. That's that's the way I I explain it. I don't know if you would uh, you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I think I agree. And also, as technology gets better, like I don't think it becomes it's not as um, strong of a problem. I, I think that we we might be able to save the the baby I earlier agree. on, and, and yeah, um, we avoid that problem entirely. Uh, but I will say, like you you had made a point about um like criminal justice and trying to work on the issue outside of politics. And I, I do wonder if there is um, an, an argument that maybe there is kind of like retribution to be had in a criminal system like we have. And I've, I've debated this so much just in my own head, like whether or not yeah, it would too. be a more <laughs> pacifistic thing in, in the free market, whether or not we would try to avoid violence at all. I know, I know Bob Murphy kind of, has that view of criminal justice that like yeah. incentives move away from violence altogether. Um, and then there's another part of me that sees Rothbard and the idea of like retribution being very important um, to uphold property rights. And I, I really don't even know. And and I think that that's, that's kind of why I didn't want to have this conversation or like an official stance in the party because the, like I would have people come up to me and they're like, I believe that abortion is murder, but I also don't know how you handle this because the the mother is the baby's strongest defender. She is the one who would bring a suit against someone. And it's like, how does she bring it against herself if she's the one who chose this? And it's like, I does the state? It, it just feels so weird to me. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is really either. Well, I typically reject the state on any level, although there is something to be said that the more local the government, the less yeah. problematic it is. But I tend to reject the state being a solution to, to abortion on any level um, because I, I just ask, like, OK, well, how would you enforce it? Because, again, laws have no meaning if it's just words on paper, like you have to enforce that law. So what does that you know, what shape or form does that take if you if you pass that law? Are we going to, you know, lock pregnant women in facilities if they even think about or attempt an abortion and hold them there for nine months? OK, well, now we're, you know, that that that, that seems to me to be a little bit of a, a a moral hazard, to say to say the least. And then this also, you know, as someone who so our fourth kid is on the way, but, you know, we've had two miscarriages. Like so, are miscarriages now uh, fair game for the government, for for police and law enforcement to uh, investigate? As as you know, every miscarriage is now an opportunity for uh, you know potential criminal charges to be to be levied. Um, it just just seems to me that you're opening up a lot of a lot of issues there. I, I just think, and now there's something to be said, all right, well, what if we got rid of the state and we had actual, you know, polycentric uh, market governance um, and anarchistic society? Could there be retributions of, of a sort applied there? I don't know. I, I feel like it's always better to aim them at those who provide the service than at the mothers themselves. It's kind of the way I lean. But, uh, you know, this is one of those issues where there's no perfect answer. I do think what you said earlier is spot on that. Uh, and I have, I've had this conversation with Kerry Baldwin, who I think is like the, <laughs> the, 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 the best 
resource for Christian libertarians to go to um, as far as like dealing with this issue because she handles it so well. And she actually had a debate with Walter Block at the Soho Forum, uh, which which was which was really well done. But I, I, the the reason for most abortions is uh, economic considerations, and then behind that, it's usually being pressured by the family uh, of either the you know their own family or the the father or et cetera, often for like economic or or social reasons. So the more we can do especially as Christians, right? Especially like the church, I think should take a leading role in this, but the more we can do to uh, provide a safe haven and a support system for, for, for mothers, uh, for women who have a crisis pregnancy, the more we, we can, we, we can actually see a meaningful decrease in abortion plus technology plays a, a role as well. I agree with you there. So that's, that's, you know, it, it's kind of a difficult balancing act, right? Like we, we all want to see less abortions, but, I'm not a single. This is not. I'm not a single issue. Uh, I'm a voter or whatever when it comes to abortion, though. Like I, I, I recognize it as the evil it is. I just, I feel like you know there are other considerations that have to be made. And I, I'm. I think it's a. I think it's fallacious thinking to 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 base all of your political decisions to based upon is this person pro life or pro choice. But I, I definitely, I definitely think it's a lot easier and and preferable if the party is at least agnostic on the issue and not taking a pro-choice stance. Yeah. I mean, I could see them like acknowledging that the unborn, like they're, they are lives and that they have rights and they deserve protections or something like that. But once you start to get into the nuances, I, I just, I'm not sure. And I'm, I think the market would, would solve that. Um, and I, I do think that the, if, if we are to go the retribution angle, I think um, the idea that you would you would go after the person who administered it is probably the best um, option. But then I don't know what happens then with the, the coat hanger examples. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's like, again, it's sort of like my response to that is like there's no, you know, this is kind of like a, what I label the nirvana fallacy, which is kind of like there is no perfect answer right there's always going to be a trade-off there's always going to be a cost there's always going to be a risk uh that doesn't mean that we we shouldn't weigh those risks but like we're always going to get down to a what if and we can't eliminate all of the what ifs um i would rather it be harder to get an abortion and if people get one that they're taking that risk (laughs) and, and doing it that way than having it be normalized in a doctor's office it's kind of where I, and that, that might sound cold to some people. And I'm not saying I want the woman to do a coat hanger abortion. Like I don't, but it's like, again, compared to the alternative, it's like, I would rather it be denormalized to an extent where people, like if someone really wanted to do it, they would have to do it that way versus having it be widely available in, in various medical facilities. Yeah. I guess, I guess the problem with conversations like this in total, in total is like, it seems to me the polycentric idea of law is that you would have very decentralized judges deciding based off of the particulars. And it's really hard to come up with, um, general, you know, solutions without having those particulars and then having the aggregate from a decentralized system that, because I think then once you would have a decentralized system that does kind of work more like common law, you might be able to, pull a 
precedent or a, a standard or a rule out of that, but we don't have anything like that right now. I don't, I don't think. Yeah. And then, you know, I guess like the other thing is sort of like, um, God, I lost my train of thought. Um, when, when dealing with the issue of abortion and, uh, you know, we're talking to, to other Christians about this issue, it's sort of like, <sighs> are you going to be able to convince the entire world to ban abortion, whether that's done through the state or whether that's done through anarchy or, or whatever, like, and I don't know, I have this problem with Christians, broadly speaking, not even just on abortion, but it's just like, I don't know, like part of me is just, I, I guess I've accepted that there are always going to be those who are not Christian and, and people who are going to find some corner of, of this planet to live lifestyles and to participate in things that I find to be degenerate or evil. And I don't think that what Christ calls us to do is to f seek those people out and to wield the sword against them to stop them. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, like I, and I'm not a pacifist. Like I believe in bearing the sword to protect the innocent. But again, that's where abortion becomes this tricky thing, right? Because it's like, well, if you believe in protecting the innocent, then you believe in protecting the unborn child. And then it's this like endless loops. Like I get where, where Christians are coming from when they want to wield the state to protect the unborn, but it's just like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like we get better return on our results when we, we use different, you know, so it's a kind of a utilitarian argument. I guess is what I'm making. Like, I want to see abortions end. The best ways to decrease abortion seem to be all these other things that we can do in the market and not the state. So that's sort of where I come down. If I if I could be shown the contrary, if I could be shown that the state was very effective at banning abortion, maybe. But then even then, it's like, well, if you ban it at the federal level, they can unban it then just as easily, right? So it's like, I don't know, it kind of seems like a waste of time. If you're going to ban it anywhere, ban it in your local community, I guess. That seems to be the, the way that I would go. But but then there's also like, you know, maybe we could uh, steer the topic in this direction because I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on, on, on this kind of more broadly speaking and not just abortion. Um, but like, it, it seems to me that like Christians can sometimes get caught up in like uh, trying to eliminate sin like in every aspect of society which i mean i'm not saying i want to encourage sin but i i feel like there there's some extent to which like you know we we can look through history and see that like th there have been christians who have tried this before they've tried to use the state to to to, to punish sinful lifestyles and to and to enforce a sort of christian morality and it just doesn't seem to me that that is a a winning strategy <laughs> or, or, or a Christ-like strategy. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at yeah, well, I think it's also just like we have to kind of look to the cross and and the idea that we we've already been saved, and I th- I think that like the idea of defeating sin, we we kind of I think we need to humble ourselves there because like Jesus has already defeated sin, um, and I think that our role is to point people towards the cross, and you know people who have um, maybe people who have had an abortion or who are going through with an abortion or who are about to like our our role then is to point them to the cross and and um explain to them what happened there and and the the salvation that comes from that and and um you know the defeat of death and what what the significance of forgiveness is because i think that we the the way that we actually do defeat sin i think in the long term is trying like if if we are to address these issues is to point people to the miracle that is forgiveness and what happened on the cross i don't think that we can prevent people from committing atrocities or anything like that uh i mean christ himself was killed and yeah i think that 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 is what makes that story so beautiful i agree do you think there's you think part of the motivation is that people are just afraid of of the of the persecution and afraid of like they're not and I, I want to be careful here like I'm not saying I'm like you know joyful about going to be persecuted or joyful about like the idea that I could be you know killed for standing for my beliefs but I don't I don't think that just because I don't I I would prefer those things not to happen I, I I still think that it's not the Christian response to in the face of that then be like, well, it's kill or or kill or be killed, right? Like it seems very contrary to everything Jesus said, which was like kind of the opposite. Like you've heard me say, you've you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you, you know, uh, if if your enemy slaps you, you know, is, is strikes you in the face to turn your other cheek, and uh, you know, it just. I don't know. There's something there that uh, I don't know that I, I've been struggling with because I that's kind of my baseline. And then I see some of the things in our culture, like with this, like, you know, the the trans stuff and the public schools and whatnot. And then I'm a bit I'm a bit more, uh, I guess, triggered on that stuff to be like, well, well, no, I'm not going to let people do that, you know, indoctrinate kids that way. 
but uh i don't know it's like do you feel like i feel like half the struggle here with like all libertarianism is like line drawing it's like we don't know where to put these lines of like you know we'll act in these circumstances but not in these ones yeah definitely i mean like i i tend to think that it 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 would just be the role of the church and the community to kind of like um create an example and I, i think that that's kind of what we get at with decentralization is kind of creating safe havens and um the one in history that I always point to is like Wisconsin being a um, sanctuary for the slaves. Right. Um, I think that like, if, if we kind of had that perspective on the church too, that like we, we are these kind of beacons for um, salvation, forgiveness and everything like that. We can do a lot more than, than we could if we tried to wield, you know, a a centralized power. I, I think that the concept of, of power, um, especially right now in the conversations we see on Twitter about the state and, and weaponizing it against sin is, is that powers talk about too unidimensionally. Like we, we treat power as if it really is um, like a, a strong president, a strong executive or like DeSantis or something like that. But I think the, the strong people throughout history are those like, like Bonhoeffer who, who was kind of made fun of in Reed's tweet the other day who, um, you know, he, he fled the United States after founding the confessing church and then decided that he didn't want to betray his people. And he went back and ended up like plotting, um, assassinations against Hitler and, and trying to organize the church. And he's, he's a very controversial figure, but I feel like, like, power is is almost seen through through being like i i think it might be tied up in like manhood and and conversations there too like we we don't think a strong man is like someone who goes around bullying people we we think a strong man is is someone who sets an example and um who has people following them because they're leading and and stuff like that and i just think i think the kind of part of the problem we have right now in in these conversations is just that we we do have a, a very simple concept of power that i think is um caught up in very high time preference behavior too the idea that uh using a sword will accomplish things in the long term i i don't think that there's really any proof of that i think that that it's actually changing people's hearts that that really affects yeah. change over time when and having faith i think is part of this too like it i like some people i think confuse me for being a pacifist which i have a camaraderie with pacifists but i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't say i'm i'm as uh what's the word here like purely opposed to all aggression and violence like a pacifist would be i definitely lean that way um and i think that's just because i I try to read the Bible and just take what it says at, at face value. Like there's just, there's, you know, especially when it comes to the, the life that Jesus led, it's, it's kind of, there's very few examples of him being aggressive at all. And usually when he was being aggressive, he was rebuking religious people, oddly enough. (laughs) Um, But, but one of the, uh, one of the passages, I was actually talking about this on Twitter the other day um, where Paul, not Paul, uh, Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest and Jesus rebukes him, but he doesn't rebuke him. Like sometimes pacifists are like, I'll oh, see Jesus is saying, 
if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Violence is bad. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I feel like that's an oversimplistic reading of the of the passage. I think what Jesus is getting at is the error Peter is making is actually like Peter's compounding the same error over the entirety of like that like 24 hour period where Jesus is taken and then crucified. He, he's he's uh, struggling with his faith, right? Like he's not trusting in what Jesus has said because Jesus has literally like, it's not like they were caught off guard by this. Jesus literally, I don't know how many times, you know, at least three or four, if not more, had told them like, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. And in three days, I am going to rise. And it's like, but 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 Peter was not trusting in what Jesus said was going to happen and unfold. Instead, he's taking matters in his own hands and trying to, the problem wasn't Peter using violence. The problem was Peter trying to use violence to control everything around him. And and that that was Peter's error. And I think that is what Christians are still struggling with today. It's like, it's not, it's not our role to, I mean, this is what it says in Romans 12, like Romans 12, right? Uh, You know, God is, is the one who takes vengeance. That's not for us. You know, God, and really God has already overcome evil. And I think you have it exactly right, Liam. Like, we're just supposed to, like, our, our job is simple. We're just supposed to go out there and just preach the gospel, just point people to the cross and what Jesus has done and, and, and then leave it up to the Holy Spirit to to convict people and leave it up to God who, you know, God's the only one that's sovereign over, uh, you know, creation to, to the extent uh, that, that he can control anything. And our attempts are just pitiful and, and, and really a waste in, in comparison to that. Yeah. I, I really like that idea that um, Peter's kind of acting out of fear and, and he's wanting to control the environment. Like, um, he he has fear of the world rather than fear of God and, and trust in God and uh, I think that that's a that's an interesting concept there and I think it, it draws back to um, the verse like consider the lilies how they grow I I think that I, I really like that analysis but I, I do still struggle with like these concepts of of power and using the sword against evil people too. I, and it's one of those things where I, I just, you know, I, I try to, I try to sit on these things and I don't think I ever come to a definitive answer. Like, um, it, even, even the idea of like Bonhoeffer trying to assassinate Hitler or something like that, that I, I, I probably would, but there's a part of me that like still thinks it, it's really hard to come to yeah. an idea there or come yeah, to a position no, I, there. I agree. It's like, I feel like I would want to, but then it's like, and I think, I think part of the problem here, you know, God, that's a, that's a meta thing. I just said part of the problem and I'm about to cite Dave Smith. Um, <laughs> but, but part of the problem here is that like, it's exactly what Dave said means become ends. So like, if you decide that like the way that you are going to combat evil is to like, you know, we're going to, take violence and overthrow the evil people it's like how are you and, and jordan peterson is like just such a a uh like a, a brain busting red pill on this stuff he's like you're wrong to think that if you were in nazi germany that you wouldn't be one of the ones you know ra- helping to round up the jews or outing your jewish neighbors like the truth is statistically speaking you're much more likely to be the you know 
it's only like one in a million who was like a uh, a Schindler or someone else who would who would actually boldly defy the the, the totalitarianism and. So insofar as that is true, it's like people who think that they could just take power and, and and use violent means to overthrow evil and not end up just becoming the next oppressors. Like they, they're really just lacking the self-awareness of like their own depravity, which is something that you think Christians should be especially like knowledgeful of is is the depravity of and and so that kind of you know, that's one of my one of the classic responses to people who were like, you know, you know, anarchy is dumb because people are evil. It's like, no, like, you know, as a Christian, I know people are evil and it's because people are evil that giving them power is a really, a really bad strategy. And if people are numb and you can't eliminate power, but you know, power should go to those who power and authority should go to those who don't seek it through violence, but rather like they earn it through, getting pushed up to that hierarchy through their their modeling that archetype of being a leader which is what jesus taught right like he said if you if if any of you would be a leader and would be first among you he must be last and you know to be a leader is to be a servant and and that's what he modeled i mean you know it's it's i don't know it just to, to me that it, it just seems like it's right there like this is how the church is supposed to live. This is what we're supposed to do. And it's, it's really disheartening to see so many Christians missing the mark. Um, and believe me, I get it. Like when you're in the faith, when you, when you look the left right now in the eye and you see some of the really evil crap they're promoting, I'm not saying it doesn't uh, invoke in me that same sort of response that I think uh, some of the people are, are, are having that's that's behind this sort of like drive for like, well, we need to wield power against them, but it's just, we, we have to learn from history. Like at some point we have to look back and see what has been tried and see that it doesn't work and realize that like, you know, the only thing that has ever worked is really, I think what Jesus modeled. Yeah. And I mean, like, even for libertarians, we were talking specifically about Christians right there, not really understanding this, but libertarians, um, you know, there is the concept of the power vacuum, and like, to kind of appeal to um, the conflict. What happens if we use force or, like, try to remove, like, Assad from power or something like that? Like, we, we will grant he's a, a tyrant, or if we try to remove, like, Putin from power, like, what would fill that void? Um, I think we're kind of conservative in that way that we don't really we don't want things to change that quickly. And I think the the way we want things to work is very decentralized and locally, because if we do try to, like, destroy the whole thing from from the top down, I think that might create um, more disorder. Um, I, I'm not sure there. But yeah, I. Yeah. I, no, think, I mean, it's like, it's like Jordan Peterson says, most most new ideas are stupid. Yeah, <laughs> so, you. That's why conservatism is such a bulwark against chaos because it's like you're you're just you know better off being highly resistant to new ideas and scrutinizing them. And if you scrutinize the new ideas with with that sort of conservative skepticism, then only the really really good ideas that can overcome all your objections are the ones that you know you slowly incorporate into your your old system. I think. Yeah, I mean. There's, I, I'm, 
I'm wondering what you think about this idea. I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot that um, <laughs> such a controversial issue, but like I, I see that uh, uh, there's a comment about if there is no God, where do John McCain and Madeleine Albright go when they die? I wonder what you think about the, the idea that like if we saw them in heaven, that would be like a miracle. So I think that like people like read when they hear that, they they might be like, well, that means that God is evil. If, if right, you just you just you just re you just put Reed back into the atheist camp firmly again. <laughs> yes. So it's like, I don't. What what do you think about that? Like, if if we died and we found Hitler or John McCain in in heaven, uh, right? What, what would that say? Gosh, um, I mean, this is kind of like problem. what. <laughs> right. Well, this is the problem of forgiveness that you kind of cited earlier and it's it's sort of christianity's greatest attribute but also its greatest weakness because like on one hand i mean it's it's amazing to think that there's nothing we could do that can separate us from from the goodness and the and the and the mercy and the love of god but then it's like <laughs> we can as libertarians especially look at some of these people like like mccain and and be like oh look at all the evil shit he did like you know even him god you can love even him and forgive even him um and and i don't know i i I do think the christian hat has to win out at the end of the day um you know the forgive like we don't earn our forgiveness and i think the problem is that john mccain is evil but I guess the way I look at it is I'm also evil. And if I had grown up in John McCain's environment and, and lived his set of experiences, again, kind of like the the thing I said earlier, where like you're statistically likely to have been the person rounding up the Jews in Nazi Germany. I think a lot of us are statistically likely to be the John McCain's and, and the George Bush's and the Barack Obama's and, uh, you know, it's, it, it doesn't mean that we're, we would all be that bad, but it's like when your best argument is like, oh, well, if I was in those positions, I might not have killed as many people. It's kind of like the people who simp for Trump and they're like, oh, well, he didn't start any new wars. It's like, that's, that's not good enough. You know what I mean? But that, and that's the point, like the, the forgiveness is that, that the point of the cross is exactly that, which is that all fall short of the glory of God. And, you know, who am I to say that, you know, if God can, you know, if God forgives me, who am I to go to him and say, but you can't forgive that person? Um, I didn't earn my forgiveness any more than that person did if, if God forgives them. We can't demand the forgiveness, but we also can't demand that God be selective with the forgiveness either. And that is a major, you know, that might be one of the harder parts of Christian theology to swallow, I admit. Um, like, you know, I don't think Hitler or, uh, you know, John McCain are in, in heaven, but I mean, can I, can I bank that? Can I, can I take that to the bank with a hundred percent certainty? No, any more than I can make sure there's no way for me to know that I'll be in heaven. I mean, Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, obviously I wouldn't bet on those people being in heaven. I'm not saying that's a a high likelihood, but it's just, you know, it, it 
this stuff's complicated and I think you have to approach it with a sense of humility to, and like, this isn't, I know I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but like, this isn't even strictly biblical stuff. Like this is what, what science has taught us. This is what psychology has taught us. Like when Jordan Peterson talks about like how you would be likely to be rounding up the Jews in Nazi Germany, he's not citing the Bible. He's, he's study he's citing his decades of experience within the field of psychology and studying uh, the 20th century and how these horrors were committed. And that's the conclusion he came to. And I think it, it lines up with the Bible, but it, we can derive that knowledge just by looking at empiric, you know, the empirical reality around us. Right. I mean, it's like, even in today's environment, um, the amount of people who probably support going to war with Russia right now, Yeah, like, you know, evil, I feel like sometimes might even represent itself through, um, just naive people and manipulation like um and i don't think that's speaking to them themselves i think that that's more about the sin than than the sinner and i think that that's kind of where we're i think that's the solution here is that you really do have to separate the sin from the sinner and and the idea that they're really being manipulated and and led here it's like if if John McCain were to be in heaven or if if Hitler were to be in heaven at the end I I wouldn't I would hope not to pause and be like oh well he is such an evil person that he deserves damnation I would see in that moment that there must have been such a significant transformation that that person is no longer he he has been transformed it's not even we're not even speaking about the same being at this point well yeah and and honestly like I mean, another another thing we know through psychology, I think, is just that, like, a lot of the people who have done the most evil things have been, like, they were twisted up by a lot of evil around them. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, wouldn't, it's like, here's a question, like, would you go back and kill baby Hitler? And I sometimes surprise people when I say, like, no, I wouldn't, because at that point, he's innocent. Like, he's completely, he's just a baby. Um, And, you know... I think it's helpful to to always the the way that God looks at us. It's like imagine if you were, like imagine if 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 someone came from the future right now, and like said, Liam, your son's going to grow up and commit the next Holocaust. Would that make you love your son less? Like think about that. Like that that's really what we're what this is about. Like if God if God loves us because we're His children, but yet at the same time he like our you know He knows His child will go on to commit great atrocities. It's like, well, if you knew that about your child, would you suddenly not love your child? Like that, you know, so listen, I'm not saying this stuff's easy. Like it, this is sort of, this is some of the, 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 the meat and potatoes of, of religion. But, um, but I, I that's the way I, I think we have to try to view it. And God is, you know, as much as he's a God of justice and, and, uh, and of, of goodness and, and he abhors evil, you know, he, he's also a God of love and of mercy. And it, it, and it's only, it's only through that acknowledgement that, uh, that, you know, we don't earn our salvation. I think that, that the true beauty of what the cross is really comes into focus. Cause the minute, the minute you can compare yourself to somebody else and say, I deserve to be here, but they don't. You've missed the point because that's not what the point of the cross was. The point wasn't it. It wasn't that we could get our. You know, I, I forget where I heard this, but it's the idea that like 
religion for most of history was about how to get to the top of the mountain and get to God. But what Jesus did was say, no, like you, you will not make it on your own. Instead, I will come down and we'll go up the mountain together. That, that is what Christianity is about. So that does, that does. Okay. Well, yeah, I might, I might kill Woldra Wilson. We'll, we'll make an exception there, <laughs> but no, even, even then it's like, I mean, now listen, would I kidnap Woldra Wilson and try to raise him better? Like, you know, I'm not saying if I had time travel, I wouldn't maybe try to abuse it, but, uh, you know, but, but I wouldn't kill, uh, someone who's innocent, who hasn't committed those, those crimes yet. And I, uh, yeah, I think we, I think we have to, to be humble, um, in, in recognizing that seed of human evil that's within all of us. Yeah, I'd try to go back in history and sit on the admissions for art school and try to get Hitler into art school instead. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wonder, have you seen the video of, um, do you remember the Amber? Oh, I think I cut out again. Sorry about that. You keep um, like, every time you go to speak, you have like a, a second cut out and then it comes back. So. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, have you seen the, the Amber Geiger case or do you remember following that at all? Mm, so she, maybe I have, but I don't yeah, know. She was the police officer who she got off of work, went home, and then entered the the wrong apartment. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So her trial, um, her the guy's brother, um, the guy who she killed, his brother sat um, in the trial and essentially forgave her and asked for a hug. And this this is one of the most moving scenes I've ever watched. Um, and, and this is what I typically reference to, to make the point that you just made about, about forgiveness It's like, I think that what Botham Jean is his name. He, he's the guy who, um, forgave Amber. What he did will do more long-term than I think the criminal justice system oh, ever yeah. will. I mean, yeah. she's like bawling her eyes out and he's like, you know, my, my brother loved Christ and he would want you to turn to Christ. Um, and I forgive you. And I, I know he would want me to forgive you. And I I think that that really is like, like Christ is kind of, I mean, he's, he's in that moment right there. And I think, um, my, my pastor described, describes kind of what happens on the cross to cross and, and the type of love, love that occurs on the cross is like one that sacrifices one's own dignity and bestow and bestows it on another. Mm. And I think that what's so beautiful about the story of Christ is it's not like the, the story of a, a family member forgiving um, someone who, you know, murdered their son or something like that. Like it's, it's about Christ forgiving everyone when everyone and their sins are responsible for his own death. Right. And there's something so significant and profound there that I I can't even, there's so many layers to it. And I I think that, that you're right, that Jordan Peterson is very good at picking apart what, what exactly is happening there on, on the cross. And, um, there's just so many layers to forgiveness and, and love there that, I think needs to be focused on a lot more by Christians. And I, and I think, you know, libertarians can learn from that. And I mean, obviously I would hope that everyone comes to Christ and, and, and would 
accept what he did for them um, on a personal level. But you can even just like look at this from a practical level and the utility of forgiveness, right? Because like, imagine if after World War One, the Western powers took a reconciliatory approach to Germany instead of the punitive one. Like, imagine just how how differently history plays out if they forgave Germany instead of seeking vengeance upon them. And, and that's that's that is the utility of forgiveness. It's the wisdom in it, and that's why, like you know, violence begets violence, you know, there's, it's true, like an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. Like these, these aren't just truisms and they're not, they might be cliches, but they, but like, you know, cliches are sometimes like, you know, they're called cliches, not because they're false. It's just like, they're so true that like to utter them can sometimes be embarrassing because it's like, you've heard them so much, but they're still true. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I would say forgiveness should not mean uh, injustice. Like if somebody is going around, you know, murdering people, well, like, you know, forgive them, but, you know, also like stop them from continuing to murder people. You know, defense is not in in conflict with forgiveness. Uh, you know, I, I would say if you steal from somebody, uh, you know, that person that, that, that was stolen from, you know, restitution should be made and encouraged, but um, there's a difference between sort of like the legal remedies that we would still need for a society to function, which I think, I think, by the way, that's the actual message of Romans 13, <laughs> not, not the justification of a state, but rather like, you know, Romans 12 and 13 are right next to each other. So in Romans 12, Paul is saying, like, live at peace with all and do not overcome evil with evil. Do not seek vengeance. He's like, but, you know, administer civil justice. And if people are, you know, th th there th there are people who need to wield the sword in the defense of the innocent. Like, the, the, anyway, that's a whole different thing. Uh, but, you know, insofar as, you know, yes, if people are going around hurting people and if people are, uh, you know, if their rights are being violated, there needs to be legal remedies to that. The legal remedies should be to make the victim whole and less about uh, applying punitive measures on the person who did the perpetrating. And, and really, I think criminal justice should be less about uh, uh, punishing people and more about trying, you know, more of a re restorative, regenerative approach where you're trying to identify why people have why, why that person did what they did and to put them on the path to healing and and ultimately if possible being reintegrated into society like that's that's what we should want as libertarians and as christians i think yeah you know i think there's a lot that christian or that libertarian can learn from christianity and i i I really appreciated your podcast with David Smith the other day and, and concept of truth that came up um, and the idea that like Jesus is truth, God is, is truth. And that like, so long as we tell the truth, it will lead us closer to, I think, freedom and to, to God. I, I mean, like something that keeps coming up, um, we had Scott Horton talk at the university of Montana here. And, and at the end he's like, you know, there, um, we're kind of at this point where there's really no one 
representing the truth. There's no like, there's even Rand Paul is pretty weak on this. And he's like, so what we have to do is we just have to go out there and speak the truth like Ron Paul told us to do. And, you know, Ron Paul was a Christian. And I think a lot of what was moving him was Christian ideals. Um, and then there's also the concept of like, I know Dave was kind of repurposing what Ron Paul said that like no revolution, um, not born out of love or what was the phrase? It's like, a revolution not born out of love will end tyranny or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that that's also exactly kind of the Christian ethic. And I think you really have to define love there um, in order for that to be true. And I think that what we're talking about it is exactly that um, kind of speaking truth and then also having that kind of delicate balance between um, forgiveness, mercy. Uh, retribution and, and justice. Yeah, I agree. Um, by the way, you 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 have kind of gone to that matrix thing again. Okay. And what we I wasn't able to hear everything you said, but you might want to try leaving and coming back in one yeah, more time we while we wrap this up. <laughs> um, by the way, H. Reardon, I saw your comment. Uh, what about the message of Matthew ten thirty four? Um, I actually just talked about this on Twitter the other day, but to read the passage quick, just to fill the time while Liam's coming in and out. Um, so it reads, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Um and whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So H. Reardon, what, what Jesus is getting there is that, um, and actually this fits perfectly with what Liam was just talking about, which is that, uh, our goal, like our end goal is actually peace, but you do not get to peace by appeasing people and you don't get to peace by avoiding the truth. And what Jesus is getting at in this passage is that he is coming to stir things up. And so, you know, and what, what he's getting at is that, you know, it, it, and this is what happens, like there's going to be strifes among people um, because of the, the radical nature of his message and listen as libertarians 100 percent, that's what we do i mean look at the the giuliani moment with ron paul like ron is an advocate of peace but when ron was going into these battles in the republican party he kind of was going in sort of with a sword wasn't he like you know i mean he was being gentle in his own way but his message his boldness in proclaiming the truth even when it was unpopular even when it caused uh, strifes with you know w- with people and then a lot of us have experienced that like when when we start preaching the truth we might lose some friends we might even have family that that feel like they can't support us or that they're they they don't agree with us and and they'll you know block you on social media or fight with you or whatever like you know th- this is the kind of stuff that jesus did in his day and just you know in the same way that like Dave Smith and Scott Horton and and all of us, you know, I think in in this this kind of Mises caucus sphere, um, what we're trying to do is 
to to in order to have long term peace, we cannot have and avoid we, we, we cannot sacrifice the current status quo of like a, a sort of like faux peace where it's like a peace that's built upon of avoidance and a peace that's built upon like suppression of the truth and people avoiding the problems. It's sort of like the way that we're avoiding a recession right now is not actually by dealing with the economic reality. We just keep on spending money and keep on doing qualitative easing and keep on artificially keeping interest rates as low as possible. Like we're avoiding right now that economic disaster, but it's still coming. And so in the same way, this so that, that's what Jesus was saying in that passage. And it so perfectly lines up with what Liam just brought up, which is that like, you know, this revolution that we're part of is built on love. And if you love your neighbor, it, it you owe it to them to tell them the truth because, you know, the truth is what sets you free. And that's true whether we're talking about geopolitical um, events, if we're talking about economics or whether it's about the nature of reality and uh you know facing the 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 deepest darkest parts of your of your being in nature and realizing your need for a savior like those are all things where the truth can be uncomfortable but it is what leads to ultimate peace and freedom yeah i would have to agree with that and i think that like really to emphasize the truth aspect there it's like we're we're living in a false reality right now. And I think that like returning back to truth can be painful as we will see with the, the recessions. Um, and, yep. and once we start or once we stop printing money, I think that like the return to reality will be very painful. But while we're living in this, you know, kind of castle in the sky, like uh, I think that what ends up happening is that people become or people get they're deceived and then, um, once we start to turn towards truth, they will turn on people who represent the truth. I think COVID's like a perfect example of this. And it's like in Mark 13, I think verse 12, it says like, you know, family will turn on family like people will um, send their family members to death. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing right now. And I think that um, truth and God as truth will have to come to uh, restore that to order, I guess. Yeah. And when he says like, you have to love me more than your own family, like some people take that very harshly, but what God's saying is that like, if you don't, cause like, you know, Jesus is the truth. You know what I mean? It's like, and if you don't put God, you don't put the tr- truth. If you don't put what is good at the top, uh, you know, it's sort of like your hierarchy of values has to be properly oriented or, it's sort of like it's sort of like doing your math wrong when you're doing a, an equation when you're going to like send a spaceship or a satellite up to like the moon or to Mars or something like you know a little error in your math now you might not notice that you're off course when it's leaving Earth's atmosphere but when instead of landing on Mars it's like you know halfway on its way to Venus it's like oh crap I guess I did my math wrong and in that same way when we you know when we are not putting God at that at that top, if we're not putting Jesus at the top, if our worship isn't oriented around uh the you know, the truth of what God has done for us, um, we will be 
led astray. Oh, I just lost Liam. Oh, now he's back. <laughs> StreamYard is all sorts of glitchy tonight, man. <laughs> or it's your Wi-Fi. I don't know. Yeah, you cut out for me there. And that, you cut out for not... me. I don't know. It, 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 <laughs> uh, who knows? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no. And, it, you know, it's funny how, like, H. Reardon brought that, that passage up so randomly because it, like, so perfectly fits what we're talking about. Um, you know, it's the kind of things, like, I don't know. I don't know what your experience is, man. But like, there's so many like little things like that 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 happen in my life where it's just like, I don't know. Like, it's sort of like you know you're on the right path because like weird circumstances sort of line up that way in ways that like you just you didn't you weren't expecting. Like whether it's like meeting a person at the right point in time or somebody says something in in sort of like the perfect setting to in, inspire you know productive conversation or 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 to, to solve a problem um you know it, it's like some people want evidence for god in a sort of like i don't know sort of like scientific sense and i'm just like i don't i i believe in god just because like i don't know it's just it th- th- there comes a point where it's like you know I either have to believe in God or I have to believe in the God of just like never ending coincidences. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it usually happens for me with like sermons. I'll, I'll be talking with someone about yeah. some issue. Like, like I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, like as an example, if the next sermon was about abortion after having this, right. Yeah. Like things like that happen all the time. And, um, an example, this happened last, last weekend. Uh, there's this, hymn that I really love. It's, it's, uh, what's it called? It's called, we, we love and acknowledge you, O Lord. And it's, uh, Gustav Holst, um, his Jupiter. That's, that's what, um, that's what it's based off of. And I had been mentioning that and, and talking to people about it the week before. And then all of a sudden it comes up in service the following Sunday. And it's like, coincidences like that happen all the time and that's that's evidence of god for me yeah i remember uh i had been really discouraged by the church's like both my personal church and like in general the church's response to lockdowns um and i basically went from being like you know someone who went every sunday and was a leader on the worship team to like i didn't go for like the better part of like a year and then I kind of realized, like, okay, well, I, I'm not happy with what the church is doing, but like, if I remove myself from it, you know, I'm maybe I'm supposed to be part of the solution, you know, or people like, you know, at the very least, I should be obedient to God, even when other people aren't being. So, the first Sunday that I went back, um, I go and the pastor gives a sermon that is basically about. Uh, he it, he speaks out of the book of Judges, and it was like they were finishing a series in the book of Judges, and then I was like rolling my eyes because they were going. He was going on about the, you know, the refrain that's like, and there was no king in the land of Israel, and everyone did was right in their own eyes, and you know, I was just like, oh great, you know, and you know, I'm sure we're gonna hear Romans 13 and blah 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 blah, and then and then suddenly it goes completely different. And then he says, but then we see later in First Samuel 8 that when they get a king, it's not a solution to their problems and that the only true king is God. And, and you know, we have to stop looking to political figures to be our saviors. And I was like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> like 
I've been gone for a year and then I come back and the first Sunday I'm back, like my pastor's giving a sermon that might as well have been titled No King But Christ. And I was just like blown away by that. And it's just, you know, there's so many things like that that happen that just, I mean, they're just like, it, it, it can be hard to communicate the, just like the awe that, that, that fills you when those things happen. Um, and that continue to happen. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I know exactly what you mean when it's like sermons or conversations or, you know, you turn the radio on at the, the right moment and a song comes on that speaks to you. It's just, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's how God works and that's how he, how he talks to us and that's how he guides us. Yeah. My, my pastor, um, he, he said something pretty similar. He's been, he's been really good on this. Uh, he was the first church in my County to open back up. And he's told me personally, like he won't shut down again. And really we, we've kind of been, especially in the Bible studies, been prioritizing, um, the re- the relationship of, of the church to the state. Um, and he actually is the one who taught me about Bonhoeffer and, uh, and he kind of like the different spheres of authority. And, and we learned about the, the Magdeburg confession. Um, do you know anything about the Magde- Magdeburg confession? Nah, uh, I, I, I might've heard it, but I don't know it by name. Yeah. I would love to see you look into it and maybe do an episode on it. Um, it's very interesting because it uh, it's it was a bunch of church figures that came together to try to um, I think pro they were protesting against the Roman Empire I, I could be wrong about that uh, and they developed the concept of the the doctrine of the lesser magistrate which is essentially just localism and the idea mm-hmm. is when a higher authority gets out of line with God's word a lower authority can kind of put it put it in its place. Huh. That's cool. I just looked it up here. Yeah. Huh. And it looks, yeah, it looks like, uh, huh. Yeah. I'll have to do an episode on that. That, that fits a lot. That, that sort of fits into, uh, it, it sort of fits a little bit into the, the Dutch reformed idea of, of, uh, severe sovereignty a little bit. Yeah. There's probably a little bit of overlap there. So that's cool. Well, well, um, we're about an hour and a half in. I don't I don't go for, you know, two and a half hours like Reed does when we go on his show. <laughs> At least not very often. Um, but this was a great conversation, man. Um, I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, um, you know, this is, you know, th- this is the kind of stuff that I think we need to be talking about. And so I, I hope people are encouraged by these conversations and, uh, you know, they can just be a small part of, you know, the, the ongoing pursuit of, you know, trying to, to find the truth and, and find meaning in all of this and, uh, you know, being encouraged to go out there and, you know, keep, we all have our own battles to fight, you know what I mean? And it all, it all comes together to, I think the, the, the glory of God and to the, 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 you know, being part of that overcoming of evil through good. So, um, where any, any closing thoughts and then, um, you know, where can people, uh, find you if they want to, you know, follow you and, uh, and, and what you're doing. Yeah. Everyone can find my YouTube channel at Liam McCullum. And then, uh, my Twitter account is M Liam McCullum. 
Um, I'm also on Odyssey, Spotify, and Apple Music. So everyone should follow me there. I just released an episode with uh, Scott Horton. It's it's a recording of a talk that he gave to my student group on campus here. So um, it's like three hours long, but I mean, it, it's a really it's a real deep dive. So into pretty short for Scott. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was funny. He gave another talk two days later at um, the other college in Montana. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll make this one much shorter because I talked for three hours the night before. And, and he's like, it, it, it went for two and a half hours. So it's like he just <laughs> got 30 minutes off. Right. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah That's I, funny. I really appreciate you having me on, man. We'll have to do it again. And you'll have to come on my show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's let's keep the conversation going on, on your show and mine. So um well yeah thanks thanks again for coming on thanks for thanks for everybody in the comments too like you know it, it's really cool to have that uh interaction with you in the audience even you h reardon like i know you and i disagree like you're you're on all of our shows and like you know you definitely come from a very different perspective of you know being more you know i i know i see your comment on on a clear comment on reed's show last night that like you're a fan of matt dillahunty who's like a very you know, that the, the, the school of skepticism and that's his brand of atheism. And, uh, you know, listen, I appreciate you coming on the show, even with our disagreements. Cause like, you know, you bring, you bring questions and a, a sort of differing point of view, which, um, which I like, I don't like being in an echo chamber. So thanks for, thanks for showing up and, and always interacting and, and the rest of you as well. Um, even you, David Brady, even though, you know, you're, uh, you're, you know, your your snark is still making me question my my peaceful parenting approach, but <laughs> you, I don't think you were spanked enough as a kid. No, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this was great. We'll definitely do it again sometime. So thanks everybody, and uh, yeah, until next time, don't fear the fire. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas Podcast today. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.